Katie, how is it going? Good, Jesse, but I might have some noise issues when we're recording it today. Um, do you hear anything like weird in the background coming from, from my mic? Just your voice, which is weird, but nothing beyond that. That's true. Uh, so not like maybe the sounds of Credence Clearwater Revival. It's not coming through. <laughs> Do you have some really cool like all-American contracting crew on site? <laughs> Very close. Okay. Is so... Credence Clearwater Revival <laughs> working on your roof? <laughs> yes, they're desperate for income. Um, they're not working on the roof. So we hired a guy to come out and we have some like cracks in the, I don't know, there's some cracks in some concrete or some cement or some bullshit. In your your relationship. Increasingly so after my wife hired this guy I'm about to tell you about. So a little while ago, this fellow shows up and he shows up not like I would expect, which is like in a truck or even a car for somebody who does manual labor. You know, he's filling cracks in some concrete. He shows up on a jazzy scooter, uh, the kind morbidly obese people ride around Walmart. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Wait, wait. He shows up in yeah. a jazzy... Is he himself, like, disabled? Yeah, he is disabled. He has a broken leg, but he's also just old. He's probably in his 70s. The interesting thing here is that he doesn't, like, live in the neighborhood. He didn't drive his jazzy scooter from around the block. He drove it from the ferry that he took over. We live a mile from the ferry, so he drove the scooter um, a mile a mile down the road, and he's now listening to Credence Clearwater Revival in my driveway and singing along. So if you hear any of the sweet sounds of CCR, that's what it is. Nice. Um, well, I wish him and you the best on this project. That's my take. Yeah, I hope that it's quiet. That's my that's my hope here. Quiet and cheap. Katie, what is the name of this increasingly rocking out with our cocks out podcast? <laughs> this is Blockman Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today uh, we're going to talk about the online component of the horrors taking place in Israel. But first, Jesse, you were at a conference this week. I Was this a furry convention? What were you doing? Yeah, well, the furry convention I wanted to go to, but it conflicted with a conference put on by the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. Yeah, have you have you been to a lot of sort of like academic style conferences over the years? I've uh, unfortunately been to many because I was for a while a traveling salesman. Uh, I I worked for a publishing house and I went to conferences to like I was a book rep. So yes, I've been to quite a few. So wait, what was a terrible, terrible book rep, terrible book rep. It's possible that one of my old bosses is listening to, to this right now. I'm sorry, Scott. I'm sorry. I was so bad at it. Okay, wait, this is a whole thing. I, I feel like at some point you've mentioned this before. Your job at these conferences was to do what? Flirt with academics, mostly. Really? Just to get them to like buy your books? I mean, nobody told me to do that, but I was just so bad at selling that that's what I would do. My commission, I'm not a good flirter. My commission after like three years of of doing this was, I think, zero. (laughs) But yeah, I've been to a bunch of academic conference. Plus, I grew up the child of two professors. And when that happens and your parents teach at sort of a a state school that doesn't pay very well, for vacations, you end up going to academic conferences or places where your dad or your mom uh, is going to conferences. The chances you were conceived at an academic conference are not zero. Let's just say that. Not zero. Not zero. That's actually, it is a thing I academics do, which is like they'll get funding from their apartment to fly to Helsinki for a conference. And it's like, I'll just push back my return date a little bit. Anyway, we didn't go to Helsinki. (laughs) This was more like Denver. (laughs) We went to Helsinki, Oklahoma. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So academic conferences are very, I don't know if you remember this, they're very, they're intense. You like, there's a lot of information, a lot of presentations, a lot of hobnobbing. They're more networking and drinking events and everything. So SEGM, Society Mm -hmm. for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, they wanted to throw a small, but like pretty hardcore, like the equivalent of an academic conference for folks who think there's gaps in uh, gender medicine. and 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 who's behind SEGM? 
I think their most famous sort of leadership person is Julia Mason. She's a, a okay. pediatrician who co-founded the group. Um, so yeah, it's as we've talked about on this show, I think it's safe to say there is at this point, as it's gotten more politicized, there's unfortunately a lot of overlap between criticism of youth gender medicine or the affirming approach as it's practice and culture war craziness and people who, who are not in this because of their love of scientific evidence, but because of other resentments about the direction of the culture or the LGBT movement. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I don't know that those would be the sort of people who are at a conference like this. Maybe they are, but yeah, a groomer discourse. We've talked about it a lot. Yeah, no, and I mean, what? I, and again, I'm not a, as a journalist. You know, you end up getting to know people in these groups. You you befriend them in a sense. Any honest journalist would acknowledge that, and that's a factor. You need to like keep your biases in check when covering them. But so far, I'm like. I'm just impressed. Like this seemed like any other academic conference. That doesn't mean like every opinion expressed was correct, but they got like really big name people, um, not from gender medicine, just from the world of like, uh, you know, medical research methods to come and talk about the evidence base. And it, it just gave me hope that this is becoming a more mainstream issue and that there's ways to have these conversations while frankly shutting out some of the crazy people who are sort of knocking at the gates mm-hmm. and trying to make it about, you know, we just did the gaze against groomers. Uh, there's just certain people who I, I don't want to be prominent in this conversation because as a journalist, that makes it more complicated when you're, when you're reporting on something that is both a scientific controversy and is increasingly including a bunch of crazy people. So I um, I was impressed by what Segum pulled off here. We'll see if they can keep it up. But I, I just recommend people look into you know their research and the research on this in general. Did Glad have a truck parked outside? Glad did not have a truck parked outside. The price of gas is really high right now. <laughs> They have. They probably burned like half of their operating budget for this year on on fuel. Circling <laughs> um, the block outside Times Square, one no, Times Square. No, but there was this weird thing where like uh, they didn't release the locations other than the general yeah. neighborhood until like Smart. the day of the conference. Yeah, I hate that you have to do that. I mean, you should. I wouldn't want a trans group to have to do that either. It's just this culture of like this really toxic culture of of. You know how it is. It it was just depressing that there had to be any secrecy to it because this was just mainstream discussion of medical evidence. So uh, yeah, I I'm not going to really say or write anything about this conference in particular, at least not yet. But it was it was heartening to uh, see that there's adults taking this seriously and no protesters there. I take it. I think the secrecy worked. I'm also it was just the average person tuning into this, and it was live streamed. Although I think you had to pay for it, would be so surprised that any of this was controversial. So I don't know mm-hmm. if the lack of protest was because there's not actually enough people, frankly, out there enough to protest something this milk toast, or if they it was just the successfulness of the um, secrecy policy. And now I can reveal it was held at the Chuck E. Cheese in Times Square <laughs> in, the ball, in the ball pit to make for more more playful atmosphere. Or it's also possible that all of the protesters were uh, ch- chanting "gas the juice" somewhere else. <laughs> Which, which we will get to. Should we? Should we just jump right into that? Yeah, Jesse. How how are you doing? We got at least one email asking. Uh, you know, as a Jew, how are you doing? None, none to me. Asking me as a Muslim how I'm doing. But Jesse, how are you doing? Yeah, I have. Um, I don't really have much close family in Israel to speak of. It's just a, bit of a random accident. Like everyone who's Jewish, your people fled from somewhere to somewhere. In my case, we were like largely just ended up in the States. Um, but of course, like basically everyone I know in Jewish circles knows at least one person over there and it's, uh, Mm -hmm. absolutely horrific. Um, and it's just, I don't really know what to say about it. We're going to get into the online bullshit soon, of course, because that's what our podcast is for, but it's just, you sort of, 
like okay in your life you have your racist neighbor but other than right. that it's hey easy. i have more than one racist neighbor by the way <laughs> i'm so i'm so sorry for the erasure <laughs> of your multiple racist neighbors this Thank is maybe you. a trite thing to say it is in your day-to-day life if you're not that online it's it's easy to forget just how depraved humans can be to one another and then you get yeah. an outburst of violence like this with people videoing it videoing it videoing what they do to other people and it just like reminds you that this whole you know living in relative harmony and not killing one another all the time thing is very fragile uh fragile and it seems like it's maybe yeah. worth investing in in ways to protect it and make sure that we don't revert to that so yeah yeah that sort of reminds me of a lot of people would have, will have heard this conversation but we talked on a recent primo episode about this conflict within the knitting world and knitters are always fighting about something and one of the conflicts was about this woman who did a, a salem witch trials themed pattern or whatever color thing for color theme for her her like seasonal knitting yarn that she sells and so as a part of just researching this episode i was looking up witch hunts and and what i saw was that in the u.s the term witch hunt is used for things like donald trump he uses the term witch hunt about himself or people more like us use it in the context of like somebody being fired from their job for saying they don't see color we mentioned this i use it in the headline of an article about rebecca tuval so i'm guilty too or the the new york York magazine did yeah and then places like like some places in africa asia central america a witch hunt is when elderly women are slaughtered because the, the crops failed <laughs> and we just we are so absolutely so privileged to live where we do and when we do and all of the conflicts that we talk about are when it comes down to it pretty minor compared to what happens in the rest of the world we it's so easy to take for like think about you and i both somehow got here from a thousand generations before us like dating all the way back to climbing out of the trees or whatever and the likelihood of living in places and times where our physical safety is generally not threatened. Um, that's very. Yeah, except when we like eat too many Doritos exactly. or something. <laughs> except by heart disease. I mean, that's yeah. so historically unusual. And that's why I'm so skeptical. That more than anything is why I'm skeptical of revolutionaries who think we need to like overthrow the system. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying we don't have a lot of progress to make, but this is this is really unusual, this relative level of peace. Um, although we'll see how far that lasts. Anyway, Everyone knows the details at this point. Very briefly, Hamas launched a giant assault on Israel that's going to change the course of Israeli and Palestinian history. Biggest massacre of Jews uh, since the Holocaust. And some non-Jews died too, of course. They were attacked because of where they were uh, in Israel. Um, And we're not going to talk about the specifics of the attack in detail or the broader conflict that sparked it because there's been blanket coverage and that's not what kind of podcast this is. And we know very little about these subjects. So, um, yeah, I was I was thinking the other day about how uninformed I am about the history of this of this region. And I was thinking, like, what can I kick out of my brain to to replace it with historical knowledge of the, the Middle East? And I was thinking... It's all just moose photos at right. this point. It's like, it's like moose photos and, like, intimate knowledge of the various characters at the Tenacious Unicorn Ranch, which, frankly, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that. Well, but now that there's a documentary on Vice, <laughs> anyone can learn that. True. So you can, you can simply dislodge that. For True. me, it's, um, you know, where I should know whether Israel withdrew from Gaza in like 2005 or 2006. I can never remember the exact date because there's a bunch of Simpsons quotes there. (laughs) Guy incognito. Um, uh, So I'll link to a couple of pieces by Nick Kristoff and Eric Levitz in the show notes. I I just thought they were reasonable, insane, and humane. 
and whatever you think of their views on the broader conflict, we're like, as we're about to find out, reason and sanity and humanity are sort of in, in short supply at the moment. Um, also, mm-hmm. not to make too much of a preamble, but I did go on a trip a year ago. The Israeli foreign ministry was putting together a tour for journalists, um, much of which was obviously premised on Israel's security challenges. And uh, once they... I basically told them, like, I'll do it if I can come a few days early and go around with sort of a pro-Palestinian group. So me and a few members of this bigger tour went around with a group called B'Tselem, a leftist group that's very critical of Israel. But the Israeli trip was, like, longer and better funded and included lodging and travel. So I, I did basically get a free trip to Israel from the government, um, albeit one that was far from a vacation because they stuffed so much uh, in there. And um, sadly, they took us to a kibbutz uh, that was threatened by rocket fire from... Uh, Hamas, because it was right near Gaza, apparently 15 members of that kibbutz we visited were killed uh, during this attack. Uh, you can listen to Michael Moynihan and Matt Welch discuss that a little bit on the, um, as of now, the latest fifth column. It's like a preview of one of the premium episodes. Um, anyway, of course, if I'm, if I'm going to take money for a trip like that, I need to disclose that whenever the subject comes up, which is whenever I talk about or write about Israel, which is rarely just so that you, the listener, can know about my potential conflicts and make your own decisions about whether or not to trust me. They did say, you did say that the food wasn't that good because it was all kosher. They didn't give you cheese. So how good, how biased could you be? Okay, let me, let me explain why I don't support the state of Israel. On this trip, um, there, I had delicious food. Some of it was really good, but because they wanted these dinners we went to, which would sometimes we'd be joined by a journalist or an academic, some of whom were kosher. We only went to kosher restaurants, which does limit you a lot because you can't mix milk and meat. But I ate a lot of good stuff there, Tel Aviv in particular, amazing food. Um, anyway. I sort of regret not going on that trip now. I mean, I didn't go for because I'm- invited? They thought because of your last name? No, I was invited because they knew you were going to embarrass yourself and they needed someone to rein you in. Um, but now I sort of regret it because the, the time to go to Israel, it might be over now. The, that might have been it. I mean, it, yeah. It was a good trip. It was interesting. Obviously, like as a journalist, I can totally understand the argument to not go on a trip like that. But anyway, all that out of the way, and and we need to acknowledge one more time, nothing we're about to say is nearly as important as the lives being torn apart in Israel and Gaza as we speak. But as is often the case when there's a big world event, there was a uh, bit of a, a bit of, there were many online meltdowns over this. Yeah. And a lot of them had to do with sort of like, responses on the left and this show is about internet bullshit so because this attack unleashed an absolute torrent of it what, what was the uh, first thing you noticed about these responses katie oh well i think initially the f- what i saw was almost entirely people being really appalled by this attack and what happened and i thought like come on hamas has now just created a new generation of zionists i personally found myself way more supportive of israel than i am on sort of a day-to-day basis after this attack so i think the first wave that i saw was just shock but then that really quickly shock shock and also people being appalled but that really yeah. but then the algorithm yeah. was like that's not getting enough engagement yeah so that really quickly changed to and it also depended on what on what social media platform I was on so like on Twitter my feed was a lot more people just expressing absolute horror at this whereas on Instagram where I'm more likely to follow people I know in real life I saw a lot more people talking about Hamas as freedom fighters. I saw a lot more Palestinian flags. I also noticed this weird thing where a lot of people I know personally who spent four years during the Trump administration calling people who voted for Donald Trump Nazis all of a sudden didn't seem to care 
when Jews were taken from their beds and slaughtered on Facebook. I found that strange. Did you find that strange? <laughs> yeah, they they made that point of the fifth column, but it's totally oh, true. It's like like they the use of this sort of language of fascism and violence and threat. Right. And then you get the genuine article and um, people get a little bit mealy-mouthed about it. Um, right. Yeah. I Again, I'm, I'm thankfully, I was, look, it's in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter much, but I was thankful to be off Twitter because I just, I, I yeah. would have responded with such outrage and I would have wasted hours and just gotten more and more upset watching this unfold. Um so this obviously ties into broad standing issues on the left about Israel. There's obviously long-standing criticism of Israel on the left. And of course, in some lefty circles, Israel takes on this oversized, almost demonic form as like the most evil country that mm-hmm. ever was or ever will be. It's a symbol of everything that's wrong with imperialism, with racism, with Islamophobia. Often, especially, I feel like especially since the reckoning, people try to graft American yeah. racial politics onto the Israeli conflict, which is just... Crazy, because a significant chunk of Israeli Jews are people of color who are refugees from other Middle Eastern countries. It just doesn't work. Um, But this was a wild example of the extent to which principled criticism Israel can either, depending on how you look at it, it can either curdle into anti-Semitism and bigotry and bloodlust, or maybe it's just it sometimes attracts people for whom that's a feature, not a bug. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, like a lot of people in lefty circles online were either blaming Israel 100% for this attack, or they were outright celebrating Hamas's murderous rampage of innocent civilians. And one of these celebrations took place in Times Square, which is maybe the most famous and highly trafficked part of the second largest Jewish community in the world, with Israel being the first. Um... New York City. So here's just one example. We're not going to get too deep into this garbage, but here's one example of the sort of bile that was being spewed uh, at these rallies. And I should say this was this one took place uh, outside the Israeli consulate. I don't. It's near Times Square, like a little bit across town. I don't know if this is the same rally or separate one, but this was the general theme. When the Palestinians broke through the fence, they put the F thirty five. As you might have seen, there was some sort of rave or desert party where they were having a great time until the resistance came in electrified hang gliders and took at least several dozen hipsters. But I'm sure they're doing very fine despite what the New York Post says. But nobody... This is so sick. I mean, these people sound like they're cheering the way that you would cheer at a high school football game. They're cheering for literal yeah. murder. Yeah. It's like the the cartoonish depths of tribalism. So uh, uh, for folks who don't get yeah. the reference, this irredeemable seeming asshole is referencing um, what is already maybe the most infamous massacre of the multiple massacres that took place last weekend. This was some sort of like psychedelic trance uh, festival. Um and uh, so just kids dancing, doing drugs, doing what kids do uh, near Gaza. I mean, I don't like electronic music either, but this is <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's just kids partying in the desert and uh, terrorists show up and kill and hunt them down and kill them. And um, I don't know exactly who was kidnapped from where. I think some of the festival goers were also kidnapped. So that's what this fucker is, is joking about. He's very happy, young people. Uh, and again... 
these are this was not a military situation. These are young people at a party. It's a massacre. It's a mass shooting, and he's yeah. celebrating it. So, and I, I think for some people, the fact that Israel has mandatory military service—that basically everybody serves in the IDF at some point for what two or three years—therefore, to some of these critics or activists, they are also complicit. Plus, they see all Israelis as settlers. Yeah, which I mean, it doesn't it, look. Civilians are civilians. These were civilians. Um, that makes yeah. I, none of it makes any sense. There's no justification for killing civilians. But if you were going to make an argument, if it's mandatory, they don't have control over it. They didn't choose to join the army. They legally right. have to. And yeah, and Israelis, like all Jews, have really complex and actually more nuanced feelings about geopolitics and about their own government, the government that they that many of them have been protesting. I mean, it, uh, for the past years. Yeah, and, Israel because Israel did um, elect this far right government, and it was teetering on the verge of like a real breach until this happened. At which point, as anyone could have expected, the whole country at least temporarily is pulling back together. But that was just like the most sickening of a lot of of displays in the wake of this, and. Um, you know, obviously, there's always been anti-Semites. There've always been people who hate Israel uh, and and want it destroyed. The tension has often occurred in this sort of like reasonable space of Israel critics who aren't crazy. Um, and sometimes in that space, like criticism of Israel is taken as anti-Semitic when it isn't. Sometimes stuff that is anti-Semitic gets dressed up as principled criticism. But that's this is all where things have gotten complicated in New York. Um, at least as far as lefty infighting goes, because this isn't one of those times when there's much moral ambiguity. Like this seems like the most straightforward event ever in terms of how to respond to it. You just, you denounce the horrors the terrorists committed. And then maybe, you know, down the road, we can always get back to talking about the complexities of the conflict, just not as people are being mowed down. Um, and even for people who are sort of broadly supportive of Palestine, people who are actually fairly ignorant about the history and the geopolitics and, and what's actually going on here, like a lot of Americans, even for people, even if for people who are waving around Palestinian flags or putting them in their bios or whatever, if what you care about is Palestinian lives, the lives of the of the people of Gaza and the West Bank, <laughs> do you know what's yeah. going to fucking happen? What's happening right now? Yeah. It's, These it's, people are going to be slaughtered. Citizens are going to die because of Hamas. I because it's not a subject I know much about. I usually like I'm very mild and milk toast, but I did like in a quick thing I did for my newsletter. I called Hamas a nihilistic death cult because that's what they are. They do not give a shit about Palestinians, and no. this will result in. It's always an asymmetric conflict. It'll always be the case that more Palestinians will die. And uh, because of the claustrophobic um, geography of Gaza and because of its population skew, it's going to be a huge number of dead kids. Um, And again, Mm -hmm. it gets absolutely, there's totally a place to talk about complexity in terms of how Israel should respond and will the response be too harsh? I think that's fine as long as you put it in context. But immediately after this massacre to to celebrate it like you're saying it's not just evil it's it's evil to the palestinians you want to protect because that's what where this mm-hmm. is going to lead but um and it's making more people into zionist i think more people who who last week didn't really give that much of a shit it's impossible to see the videos of young people being kidnapped and not feel sympathy for israel yeah yeah, if you're a decent human being which which a bunch of people aren't um so look this this seemed like a straightforward uh, thing to respond to, but then there's always there's always like totally fringe, wacky groups. The Democratic Socialists of America are are fairly mainstream. They've gotten mainstream coverage. They have main some mainstream members. 
And they originally came out more or less in favor of Hamas. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we get to the details, like how, how would you have described the DSA before this? Uh, a rather toothless organization that involves processing. They're like the lesbians of, of political parties, in which, and by that I mean they love to process um, a lot of rules. Dramatic, highly dramatic. We've heard some stories about the inner workings of the of the DSA, and they're the sort of organization that might have some interesting ideas or even planks that I would sort of broadly agree with. But they are regularly stymied by their own internal bullshit. Yeah, and and I'd add there's a lot of different chapters around the country, and they do some of them seem to do worthwhile stuff like tenant organizing, you know, labor stuff that I'm in favor of because I am. Um, but they also have this sort of self defeating radical streak, and there's always been this fundamental tension because the DSA seems to be dominated by pretty privileged, college-educated white people, uh, in many cases Mm -hmm. far whiter, uh, more educated, and significantly to the left of the communities they claim to represent and be organizing and fighting for. So as a 2018 article in The New Republic put it, quote, as of last year, the organization was roughly 90% white and composed of people mostly under 35, a palette often associated with gentrification in areas like Oakland, Philadelphia, and New York City, then in a parenthetical, This is the author of the TNR piece. When I asked DSA for updated numbers, I was told they are not currently collecting demographic data. Hmm. 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 Uh, In America, it's hard to be 90% white if you take even a relatively random sample of Americans. We are not that white a country. And I mean, we're still most like majority white, but not by that much. Um, Yeah, race is a continuing issue in the DSA. We talked about this a while ago, Jesse. Do you remember maybe even a couple years ago about some some going-ons within the Seattle DSA? Remind me. We've done so many Seattle stories <laughs> or so many Northwest stories. Well, so what happened is that the Seattle DSA a couple years ago voted to start giving reparations to black members. And there were no strings attached to this, no means testing. So if you were, for instance, a black tech worker and you'd been to one DSA meeting, you were entitled to this money. Whereas if you were a Mexican immigrant who was working under the table and, and trying just trying to make ends meet, you would have to pay into this to, to give reparations to the Google employee whose parents immigrated here from Nigeria. <laughs> and so especially in a city like Seattle, which actually runs on white guilt, uh, wind power and white guilt, uh, this this became this huge issue within the DSA. Yeah. And I think there's like a structural problem there because the people who have the most time and inclination to organize and go to meetings uh, are more likely probably to be yeah. highly educated and white. But it, it is yeah. like a real issue because if you're... Well, let, let, we'll get to that. The point is, in the immediate wake of the Hamas massacre, like at this time, the day of, when we're far from a total death count and Israeli forces are still like going village to village, town to town in the south, trying to drive out or, or capture or kill remaining Hamas members who infiltrated, DSA repeatedly tweets in a manner that puts all the responsibility for this on Israel. They also promote this Times Square rally. Uh, this was a rally that attracted genuine terrorist supporters. And... I just, I, I don't know. I knew DSA had like a radical, irresponsible streak. I just couldn't really believe they would do this um, it, to sort of outright excuse and if not support the straightforward mass murder of civilians. Am I naive to be surprised that they would have done this? And again, we should just be clear, they promoted it. They didn't organize it. I don't think it's super surprising after seeing the response online. You just think there's that many people who are like that deranged about Israel? 
Yeah, I think people are deranged about Israel, and they also consider Jews white. They have this very black and white, or or like you're European, maybe they have this very black and white uh, vision of how the world works. People impose, as you mentioned earlier, American racial relations onto this issue. And so I think for a lot of these people, it is obvious that Israel is bad, Jews are white, and they are settlers, and they are, they are colonizers, and therefore the Palestinians are, are freedom fighters. And I think you can, make, you can make that argument without celebrating actual terrorism and the murder of civilians. Yeah, although again, some of the racial things are very oversimplified. Right. But right. Point, you could, I can absolutely support the Palestinian cause without supporting right. terrorism. Um, so after DSA does this, a lot of people freak out. Um, some people responded in a way that I thought was exactly right. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whatever you think of her, was basically like, fuck this. Here's her quote. This is via Politico. It should not be hard to shut down hatred and anti-Semitism where we see it. That is a core tenet of solidarity, said Cortez, one of six DSA members in Congress in a statement late Monday. These were her first comments on the rally. Quote, the bigotry and callousness expressed in Times Square on Sunday were unacceptable and harmful in this devastating moment. It also did not speak for the thousands of New Yorkers who are capable of rejecting both Hamas's horrifying attacks against innocent civilians, as well as the grave injustices and violence Palestinians face under occupation, end quote. So again, she's very critical of Israel. This is not hard. This is not a particularly, it's not like a tightrope act, right? No, this is, it is incredibly simple to condemn terrorism. And I don't think that it is required of everybody to stand up and say, I think this thing is bad. I personally don't tweet in moments like this. I don't think my voice is helpful. I don't think it's necessary. My rule, I didn't tweet about Ukraine. I don't tweet about Israel-Palestine. I'm honestly, I'm too ignorant to understand the nuances here because I, all of my brain space is taken up with the Tenacious Unicorn Ranch. Mm-hmm. So you, I don't think there is a an obligation for everybody to, to come out and, and note that bad is bad. There is a difference when it comes to our elected leaders, however. And yeah. I think her statement, it maybe came a little late, but I think her statement was a good one. Yeah, and she does have ties to DSA. She's, she's yeah. know, like I said, one of six members. So yeah, I think she did have some obligation. And whatever you think about the timing, that, that statement is right. You know, I'm sure some people disagree with... What she says about Israel, but that that's fine. The point is she condemned the actual violence, which, Jesus Christ, is not hard. Um, so, as a Politico article subsequently noted, there was a, a meltdown within DSA over this that really infected New York progressive politics more generally. I guess I'm mis- mixing metaphors, but whatever, I'm tired, y'all. Um, there was uh, Representative Jamal Bowman. He's a staunch critic of Israel. Uh, his, quote, spokesperson confirmed Wednesday that he let his membership to DSA expire last year following disagreements on funding Israel's defense missile defense system. So he's basically like, I don't even go there anymore. That's not my school. <laughs> <laughs> Others, I graduated last year. What does mm-hmm. this have to do with me? Others appear to be leaving or threatening to leave DSA. We'll obviously have to wait uh, to see what the full fallout is. Um, but like, I was like surprised that so the, the leadership of DSA, NYC, the NYC branch of DSA doesn't appear to have resigned. This guy, Jeremy Cohan, who's a co-chair, told Politico, number one is that the DSA is anti-war and pro-peace organization that stands for the full thriving of all human beings. The idea really? that we would celebrate or glorify any death, I find absurd. What? <laughs> right. What? Just right. resign. Resign. Um. So the New York, uh, New York DSA did release a statement apologizing. Even that statement doesn't just straightforwardly say that the Hamas massacre was unconscionable. Like, I don't usually nitpick like this, but it's just not hard to say. 
this was horrible. Instead, they're just much more generally against violence. Very courageous of them. So, yeah, I hope this does lasting damage to DSA, like both the NYC chapter and the National. I just, I think if you're an organization and you turn out to be this morally perverted, you need to like wander the desert, maybe not for 40 years. Just <laughs> something went so wrong here. And I do support, whereas like, obviously if a far right group did this, I'd be like, whatever. I, I don't, want the people working on a genuinely important causes, which some of what DSA does are important causes. I don't want them to be raging pro-violence assholes. Yeah. So I, I just think they deserve all the flack they get for this. Um, Agreed. But I don't think that what they said or or didn't say was actually nearly as bad as the Chicago BLM. Did you see their tweet? No. Uh, yeah, this was like glorifying the, the weird hang gliding or paragliding thing. What was it exactly? Yeah. So BLM Chicago, they tweeted a, it's an image of someone with like on a hang glider and it has the Palestinian flag. It says, I stand with Palestine. So they posted that meme. And then the text of the tweet is, that is all, that is it. And the reason the image is so disgusting is because people hang lid. Is that, how do, what's the, the past tense of hang lid? Hang lid. Hung lid. Into, into Israel with fucking guns to kill people, to kill yeah children to kill families to kill old people it's it's really really gross yeah um should we do housekeeping and then talk about the harvard angle because of course there's a harvard angle of course there is yes let's do it all right well let's just keep this short it's this is a down urban episode <laughs> Jeez. um we're a podcast, blotchreport.org. You can sign up to become a premium subscriber. Uh, for $5 a month and up, you get three extra episodes a month. We've got some some good stuff coming up, good stuff in the works. You'll also be part of a very large community, surprisingly large, uh, given who we are and our off-putting personalities, uh, weekly comment threads, all sorts of discussion, access occasionally to parties and special events uh, once in a while. Uh, you should also- I will not be there to any of them. To any of them. Never. No. I will, though. Never. You can also go to Apple uh, Podcasts to rate and review us or iTunes or whatever the hell it's called. Uh, Barpodmerch.com for merch and blockedreported.reddit.com for our subreddit. Thank you to Soft and Chewy. Okay. So, as is the case, whenever there's a catastrophe overseas, the most important question is how are kids at Harvard doing? (laughs) How are they doing? So the DSA was, of course, far from the only organization to publish a morally unconscionable statement about Israel. Uh, Right after the attacks, a coalition called the Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Groups, which is, I think, 34 groups in total, though someone else reported 31, somewhere somewhere in the 30s. They released this statement as screenshotted by Ian Bremmer. Uh, The statement is no longer online for reasons that will quickly become clear. Katie, do you want to read this? We, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Today's events did not occur in a vacuum. For the last two decades, millions of Palestinians in Gaza have been forced to live in an open-air prison. Israeli officials promised to, quote, open the gates of hell, and the massacres in in Gaza have already commenced. Palestinians in Gaza have no shelters for refuge and nowhere to escape. In the coming days, Palestinians will be forced to bear the full brunt of Israel's violence. The apartheid regime is the only one to blame. Israeli violence has structured every aspect of Palestinian existence for 75 years. From systematized land seizures to routine airstrikes, arbitrary detentions to military checkpoints, and enforced family separations to targeted killings, Palestinians have been forced to live in a state of death, both slow and sudden. Today, the Palestinian ordeal enters into uncharted territory. 
The coming days will require a firm stand against colonial retaliation. We call on the Harvard community to take action to stop the ongoing annihilation of Palestinians. How do they suggest doing that? <laughs> um, right. <laughs> Listen, uh, Harvard here. Uh, yeah. Harvard. Um, so look. Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence is ridiculous. There's mm-hmm. nestled in this, there's less crazy points about what retaliation, the kind of retaliation Israel sometimes does, but to hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for a terrorist attack that killed civilians is awful. It's it's just, again, moral, it's just awful. It's awful, it's awful. And there was this was always going to spark an uproar and lead to outrage, but it was probably exacerbated by this billionaire hedge fund manager and Harvard grad named Bill Ackman. Uh, after Ian Bremmer tweeted that image of the letter and denounced it, Ackman retweeted him and said, I have been asked by a number of CEOs if at Harvard would release a list of the members of each of the Harvard organizations that have issued the letter assigning sole responsibility for Hamas heinous acts to Israel. Hamas heinous acts is hard to say. So as to ensure that none of us inadvertently hire any of their members. If in fact their members support the letter they have released, the names of the signatories should be made public so their views are publicly known. One should not be able to hide behind a corporate shield when issuing statements supporting the actions of terrorists who we now learn have beheaded babies, among other inconceivably despicable acts. The baby beheading thing, I think, is still being contested. I think it's confirmed that Hamas did burn some babies, so whatever. Um, Katie, what do you think about this request that Harvard hand over a list of all the students in all the groups whose organizational names were on this letter. This is crazy. This is a real, <laughs> this is cancel culture. This is, this is actually an example yeah. of, of, of cancel culture. Um, for one, you don't know if the students who are in these groups support this letter whatsoever. You don't know if they were even consulted in this. This letter was put out the same day as the attack. This is 35 or 31 groups. There's, uh, there's probably hundreds of students who are in these groups. Do you think that these students were all consulted about this letter? Probably not. So that's the first thing is just people will be wrapped up in this and be blamed for this who who don't agree with it. That's that's guilt by association. That's <laughs> terrible. Another thing is that let's just assume for a second that everybody who who is a member of these groups who signed this letter agree with this. These are college students. When I was 18, nine, literally the dumbest people, the dumbest on, the people on, on the planet, the people who are who are especially at Harvard. Yes. When I was 18, 9-11 happened our first semester at college. And I was responsible. <laughs> That's how dumb I was. Yes. And I went to class uh, the day after 9-11 and I sat down in my creative writing class and I said, we deserved it or we had it coming, something like that. And I know this, I would have blacked this out, but I know this because this was later memorialized in my professor's memoir. Uh, I was 18 years old. I was a complete fucking moron. I might have had some, there might have been some grain of truth. Like what I was trying to say is that American foreign policy directly led to this catastrophe. Students are absolute fucking morons. The people who, who signed this letter might not even believe this a year from now. For them to be held responsible, to not be able to get jobs because of shit that they said or didn't say when they were 18 years old, that is cancel culture. Yeah. And if you oppose cancel culture, you should oppose cancel culture even when the people involved say things that are really, really hideous. It's just – this is all the same shit because like then came the virtue signaling. So as the mm-hmm. New York Post subsequently reported – Quote, at least a dozen business executives have endorsed Bill Ackman's call to refuse to hire members of student groups at Harvard that signed on to a letter, blah, blah, blah. So they 
everyone on both sides needs to say something stupid and crazy. They're yeah. just going in different directions. Um, not long after the Harvard controversy blew up, multiple websites apparently went online calling individual students who are members of these groups anti-Semites, posting their personal information, although Google apparently pulled down at least some of the doxing sites. Did you? I never saw any of these sites. Did you actually see any of them? No, I didn't. I, I tried to click on a couple of links, and by the time I did, they were both pulled down. But the Harvard Crimson reported that this that there were at least four of these sites. So I assume that they did their due diligence there. Um, in addition, and more menacingly, a truck apparently drove around Harvard Square showing images of some students' faces, calling them anti-Semites. Do you think they borrowed the Glad truck? I was going to say, they're using Glad Glad This <laughs> is so fucked up. Man, these kids are idiots. They are wrong. But that is fucked up. I'm not saying, I'm not saying this would justify it. I, I'm actually a little unclear. It, is the prevailing understanding that whoever's responsible for all this just like picked kids who they saw were members of these groups or did they pick kids who had leadership roles? Do you know? I have no idea. I did see one Harvard professor who tweeted a uh, an email, a screenshot of an email he got from a former student, a Harvard alum who had been a member of one of these groups. And he'd already graduated. He wasn't a part of this this letter at all. He had nothing to do with it. And he had apparently been doxxed. So whoever made the list was apparently not uh, didn't get the updated roles. You're saying you're saying online justice was not accurate. Strange in this in this account. Strange. Yeah. I think anyone who's ever talked to any of these kids should be uh, sent to Israel and imprisoned as terrorist supporters. <laughs> to be honest, they should um, have to join the IDF. Yeah, I mean, look, in moments of, of trauma and tragedy, people lose their minds. There's witch hunts. You you need to resist that. But but tell me if you agree with my overall reasoning here, like comparing the Harvard thing to DSA, because. I think there's a pretty big difference. Like DSA and its chapters are political organizations run by adults. And we all have a right to like them or dislike or something in the middle. So my perspective is that they crossed a real moral line and they failed in one of the things they should be most concerned about, which is being appealing to people and bringing people in. I'm, I'm disgusted by it. And I feel like we all have a right to be. I, I just think the moral calculus is very different if you're applying that level of judgment and scrutiny to individual college students who, again, are dumb. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and and also, actually, the smarter they are, the dumber, the dumber they are. They the are. better they do on the SATs, the dumber they are. There's some I, – I, who knows if it replicated, but there's this research finding that like people who are smarter can actually become more ensnared in like radical and conspiratorial thinking because they're like better able to mm. justify their own beliefs. Um, because they assume that because they're smart, they know that they're smart, so they, <laughs> therefore their instincts must be correct. Part of it too. Um, so yeah, it's also like it's a guilt by association thing because like you said, we don't know – which students actually supported this. There was subsequently a walk back from many of the groups. The most morbid example was that the Nepalese Student Association found out that 10, after joining the crazy statement, they found out that 10 Nepalese students had been killed by Hamas. That should not take, should not take that. <laughs> right. Now that it's our people. Now that we're um, affected. Yeah. I also, I'm curious about the internal pressure to conform from within Harvard. And this is yes. something we've talked about a lot in the context of journalism, especially around the summer of 2020 and BLM. We've often talked about it in the context of trans issues. I'm sure that that exists in Harvard. And it is very unfashionable within university settings to be a Zionist or to even be pro-Israel or to be or to say, you know, I think Israel has, does some fucked up things. 
but they still have a right to exist. Yeah. It's very unfashionable, uh, unfashionable. So I can, especially in these in these liberal environments, I'm sure that probably isn't true at Yeshiva, but I suspect that this was also happening within Harvard. And so maybe these students, some of these students don't even agree. They just don't have a fucking backbone because they're 18 years old and they don't want to get called out by their peers. Yeah, I will say. Uh, so instead they're getting called out by billionaires. I will say uh, Harvard Hillel, Ian Bremmer, um, I think Ian Bremmer, and definitely Larry Summers, uh, you know, former Treasury Secretary and Harvard president, mm-hmm. they all said the right thing, which is a statement is terrible, but it does not help to try to like harass these students. So again, there are some people showing some moral backbone. I, so many people who I agree with when it comes to this conflict were absolutely rabid about these students. Megan McArdle posted what I thought was a very sensible tweet about how this is an example of cancel culture. Robbie Suave, too, he wrote something about that for a reason. Both of them got ratioed or near ratioed because to some people, this case justifies it. It's it, it, Even if it's cancel culture, it doesn't matter. This time it's justified. There's always an exception. But that's what people always say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I should say the the... Some of the students affected claim that individual members weren't always informed. The organizations in question. Yeah, which makes perfect sense because it's like it happened on a Saturday. I mean, you think these kids are no, they're 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 not like checking their email. They're they're sleeping off their hangovers. If they were email at all, I bet it was just like one or two people in each very much being pressured to sign it. Um, All that being said, I couldn't help but laugh a bit mordantly at this part of some of the Harvard Crimson's coverage. Quote, in a statement to the Crimson on Wednesday, the uh, Palestine Solidarity Committee called on university leadership to immediately and unequivocally condemn the harassment and and intimidation of its (laughs) students. The truck actively threatened student safety on campus at a time when credible death threats have already forced us to postpone a solidarity vigil, acknowledging all civilian victims, the statement reads. It is quite literally physical threat, a heinous Uh. intimidation technique, a warning sign meant to scare ideological allies into repudiating our mission and for the Jewish members of associations linked to our own, an unjustifiable and insulting slap in the face. It continues, The doxing truck is the ugliest culmination of a campaign to silence pro-Palestinian activism that the PSC has experienced for years. Quite literally physical threat, Mm -hmm. in addition to being grammatically incorrect. Katie, you know what is quite literally a physical threat? Uh, What would that be? Getting murdered by Hamas. Yeah, yeah. So this was very... the, The... um, uh, these kids are going to need to uh, learn how to read the room if they're going to be successful in the professional world. This was, look, I'm sure they're scared. I, I It's not good they're harassed, being harassed. We're against it. We don't want anything to happen to them. But like, uh, sorry, just just have some perspective and just apologize and move on. I just, I, I love the selective fragility. Like, right. I, these are kids with underdeveloped brains. But if you're a kid with an underdeveloped brain, you don't need to chime in on every world affair. And you can't retreat to that if people call you out for it. How do you think they would have felt if Harvard leadership had issued a message unequivocally condemning Hamas immediately? Oh, I'm sure they would have freaked out that that they didn't include a nod to Palestinian suffering. Right. So again, the, the key takeaway, though, I do think it's Ackman's call was bad. The truck was bad. None of that helps. Uh, no. Glad to see some people repudiate it. Yeah. And a couple people actually lost jobs over this, right? Yeah. At NYU Law, this is from the New York Times. At NYU, Rena Workman, the president of the University Student Bar Association, wrote in a message to the group on Tuesday that Israel bears full responsibility for this tremendous loss of life. This regime of state-sanctioned violence created the conditions that made resistance necessary. Uh, Mix Workman, they're non-binary, wrote in the Student Bar Association bulletin, I will not condemn Palestinian resistance. Uh, the backlash was swift 
By evening, the law firm Winston and Strawn said the comments profoundly conflict with its values and without naming the student, said it rescinded its offer of employment. The same day, the dean of the law school, Troy A. McKenzie, repudiated the student's remarks. The message was not from NYU School of Law as an institution does not speak for the leadership of the law school, Mr. McKenzie wrote. So let's just handle the last part first, the dean's remarks. This isn't the first time a dean or other administrator has like publicly denounced a dumb student remark. And I feel like I never liked this because like what kind of moron is like this random student said something that represents NYU laws, like institutional stance. What, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I want to just point out that there's something sort of hilarious, and I'm not the first person to make this observation about this person, this revolutionary, uh, non-binary person at NYU had a job offer with this Winston and Strong, which is apparently one of the big law law firms. Um, so you're going to go be a revolutionary and then go work for the people who defend Raytheon or whatever. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Hello, actually, well, hold on. If you go to their website, Winston represents non-binary runner Cal Calami and Sir <laughs> securing groundbreaking therapeutic use exemption from USAD. Uh, that's an, an interesting anti-doping case. So I guess they do some social justice stuff. I'm sure all of the big law firms do some social justice shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. When it comes to the dean, I think it's fine to say this, the student doesn't represent the law school. That's totally fine. But I think even private universities like NYU should really adhere to the First Amendment as much as possible. So what this person said may be vile, but it's still protected. This is protected speech. This is political speech. And so I'm uncomfortable with them losing their job for that same reason. I don't know how I feel about the offer being rescinded. I don't like pe- like you. It's just, we've, we've talked about this before. It just gets to the question of how when is an opinion so bad that there's going to be consequences employment-wise? Because we know in our at-will employment system, there's some line. Obviously, if someone says, I don't like black people, they will be unhirable in polite company. Yeah, this true. is not that. This is pretty bad. And and it's at a time when people are being murdered and surely people at this law firm, you know, know everyone like in, in our corner of the world, everyone knows someone who at least knows someone who's affected. And it's like a really offensive thing to say. And this is a big, powerful law firm. And from their point of view, they're just like, we don't want to deal with this. Why would we deal with this? So I don't want to side with them, but I, I, I get it. And I, I don't think, I don't know. Has anyone ever said you don't have an unfettered right to say whatever you want? I mean, I guess the other thing is if it was on a private. That's consequence culture. Right. Well, I don't want to go down that road, but I just have trouble getting that worked up about it. I guess it's a sort of different. I think this was a private listserv and it got leaked. I don't know if that makes a difference. Um, Maybe it's just because so much other horrible crap has happened. I just I'm having trouble mustering much sympathy for this person. I mean, yeah, I don't have any sympathy for this person. I just think that if we're going to be consistent with our values, which we should try to be, this is an example of somebody being fired for political speech, even if it's speech that we don't like, which I am opposed to on principle. But do you think so political speech is is pro-Nazism is political speech? You don't think people should be fired for that? Or it's not reasonable. I just don't think that saying Israel bears full responsibility. No, 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 no. I'm not saying it's it's the same. I'm saying it sounds like you're saying the principle is you should not be fired for political speech. Yeah, that's what the principle is. Okay, but then that should apply to all political speech. I mean, I'm not going to say there's no line. And I think compelling this law firm to hire this person would also be wrong. Freedom of association is an important First Amendment right, just like freedom freedom of speech. But when it comes to where to draw that line, I just don't think... 
any one individual has the capacity to decide because this is so subjective. So I tend to defer to FIRE since the ACLU is busy doing uh, other stuff. Uh, so I reached out to FIRE. Here's what Alex Moray said. She's the director of Campus Rights Advocacy. Quote, there's no indication Mix Workman did anything other than engage in 100% protected political speech. It's very chilling for NYU to suggest students speaking out on these important issues might find themselves on the wrong side of the disciplinary process. And as for this person losing their job, Alex said, as for whether private entities can retract job offers or billionaires should be trying to blacklist undergrads, they have the right to do that. Ought they to? Only if we want to disincentivize our future leaders from attempting to solve the world's problems. So I think for me, I just have to draw the line pretty liberally in terms of when people should be punished for political speech, even if I disagree with that speech. I'm just saying they're they're endorsing a massacre. But if you believe, if you genuinely believe that Israelis are settlers, they're colonizers, and Palestinians are are freedom fighters, simple as that. Let's yeah. If you if it is as simple as that for you, then this this is where that leads you to. Yeah. Like if we just take another conflict that's going on right now, I will not condemn Ukrainian resistance or something like that. I don't know. It's Yeah. To some people the conflicts are going to be very similar. They are they are the oppressed. Thomas Chatterton Williams tweeted about this. This is sort of the evolution, the natural evolution of breaking everything into oppressor and oppressed class. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um the only other point I'd make is that like one maybe and maybe this isn't worth worrying about, but like one potential unintended consequences of coming down too harsh is like there are actual anti-Semites who believe that like Jews control everything. So the idea of creating a, like an enemies list of people who don't support Israel or mm-hmm. quote unquote pro Hamas, like it just might, it might not end where you want it to end. If you like really crack down this hard, I think to the extent you can treat people with the humanity they're lacking, that's probably, probably the best approach. Just be like, you you understand what happened. And, and after the backlash, again, there was some recognition that these groups had done something wrong, but it's just, this has been incredibly ugly to watch this response to it. I, I've been disgusted. Did you see, actually, I'm sure you didn't see this because you're off, off Twitter, but Kat Rosenfield made a good point. And this is in the context of a Yale professor who tweeted some pretty heinous shit about this. Uh, Israel is a murderous, genocidal settler state and Palestinians have every right to resist through armed struggle, solidarity, hashtag free Palestine. Uh, so Yale professor... Then Liz Wolf from Reason, she tweeted, college administrators will increasingly have to decide whether they actually meant it when they acted like microaggressions were intolerable, intolerable because, wow, this is a lot fucking worse than that. And it's all over academia. It's a very good point. And Kat said, this is maybe the weirdest part of this whole thing to me. How do you go from losing your mind over an errant pronoun or the phrase master bedroom to shrugging off explicit hate? <laughs> She's right. I mean, I, I it, the way you reconcile this is the the people saying words of violence are full of shit and they're just yeah. using that as a cudgel to get what they yeah. want and they don't believe it for a second except maybe like yeah. a small subset of like genuinely unhealthy people think words are violence but when you compare overheated claims about microaggressions cause suicidality right if, if that causes suicidality which again i'm not endorsing that how does it not cause suicidality for like israeli students or, or students with friends in the region of course that i mean none of it whatever it's like overthink it it's the words are violence thing is so disgraceful violence is violence we're seeing violence right now yeah, and liz pointed out that yale is the same place where this professor works where the nicholas christakis and erica christakis 
clusterfuck over Halloween costumes and what was that, maybe 2014 or so. So at the time, Erica Christakis, she was a she was the associate master of one of the colleges, which I assume is like sort of like a dorm or something. Associate master, that seems like a problematic phrase. And she wrote an email to students basically saying like, hey, Halloween is coming up. Uh, maybe don't freak out when you see white girls wearing bendies or whatever. And it caused this massive shitstorm for her, and she ended up leaving Yale, I believe. Yeah, people are very selective in what's uh, which words are violent, but uh, I guess it's not surprising. So, yeah, we'll see what happen- what's going to happen. What I mean, I think what's going to happen is probably tens of thousands of deaths, uh, many of them innocent civilians. So it's an uh, incredibly dark period, but we'll be here to document the least important parts of it for everybody. That's all we can do at a time like this. <laughs> Who's the real heroes? Who's the real heroes? Hey. Okay, Jesse, um, before we leave, can I point out one more ridiculous tweet to you? Please do. Okay, so Peter Savodnik from the Free Press, he wrote a piece about this. It was called, This is What Decolonization Looks Like. And it was a good piece. It was about, for instance, like there's this writer for Teen Vogue who who posted on Twitter, what did y'all think decolonization meant? Vibes, papers, essays, losers. Yeah. <laughs> quite the tweet anyway so james Lindsay, conceptual james he responds to peter and he says a real shame the essay fails to point out that the whole academic house of cards all those words turned to nightmares stem from the insanely popular and influential franz fanon and his apologist to us john parzart i just love this tendency of people to turn every conflict every international horror into their own personal pet oh my god it's it was foucault it was foucault yeah dude i don't i'm not gonna bet it because i feel like i'll blow my brains out but (laughs) brett weinstein had uh We'll include a link. This bizarre segment where he seems to be suggesting that there's some sort of conspiracy here to divide and conquer COVID skeptics or what he calls COVID dissidents. Like, guys, not there's just such an urge to chime in on everything, including things you know. You know what it is? Actually, this is about my personal pet issue. It's about pronouns. It's about they, thems. That's what it is. That's what this it's is. Definitely. This whole thing. The NB fighters of Hamas. It is. Yeah. Oh, that that was another thing that was darkly hilarious about this. Did you see these photos of people, protesters at these rallies who had signs that say like queers for Palestine? Queers for Palestine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're putting you in the camps, guys. Sorry. They're gonna look at your purple hair and they're they're not gonna respect your pronouns and then they're gonna fucking murder you. It's all it's all so bad. I dude, it's hot. And that's just that's one more element of this whole thing that makes this so bizarre is do people, the the, prog- the progressives and the leftists in particular, who are supporting Hamas, do they know that Hamas is a fundamentalist Islamic Islamist organization? Do they understand their their politics here? I mean, it all gets mixed up because like Palestinians <laughs> have different views. There's like there, I mean, was before it was decimated, like an educated middle Palestinian class Palestinian. It's all a mess. But yeah, Hamas. I think it's literally just they're Israel's enemies, so they must be good. It's like the the rigid thinking of a three at the Segum conference. They, you know, some of the therapists talk about helping to kids to develop less rigid thinking. These are adults with very rigid styles of thinking. Israel bad. Anyone right. who attacks Israel is good, even if they're murdering right. people. It's just right. uh, it's gonna get and the conflict's gonna get so much worse. But let's uh, so much worse. Let's leave it at that. How about all right, Jesse? Until next time. As always, we've been produced with help from Tracy Woodgrains and Jessica, the 80s baby, and a lot of fucking psychotic people on Twitter. Thank you to them, too. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, 
Guys, I can't even come up with one today. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you need a one-legged construction crew that transports via Jazzy Scooter, have I got the guy for you.